Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Today, we're honored to feature excerpts from a fascinating archival interview from the City University of New York's Leon Levy Center for Biography. In September 2018, two Pulitzer Prize-winning authors, Jeffrey C. Stewart and David Levering Lewis, sat down in front of a Levy Center audience for a lively conversation about Stewart's biography, The New Negro, The Life of Elaine Locke, published by Oxford University Press in December 2017. Here's distinguished historian and interviewer David Levering Lewis. Uh, fair to say, Jeffrey, uh, notwithstanding several efforts to comprehend Alain Leroy Locke, none has risen above the earnest and the workmanlike until your biographical Bildungsroman. Your epic life and times of the enigmatic and remarkable little man whose singular achievements stand out in Du Bois's uh, striking eulogy as singular in a stupid land. Until your profoundly welcome, if sometimes remorseless, research and your opulent contextualizing and intuitive psychologizing of this Harvard junior Phi Beta Kappa, Rhodes Scholar, Harvard PhD in philosophy, founding ideologue of the new Negro paradigm, many, if not most, characterizations of your subject run to caricature or libel, as with poet Claude McKay's Locke as a perfect symbol of the Afro-American Rococo, or my own description of Locke as the Proust of Lenox Avenue. Although, as you've uh, reliably been reported to say, my Proustian intimations helped overcome some initial reluctance to face Locke's sexual transgressions on your part. So, an opening question. You report that Locke informed his mother of his first sexual homosexual experience. Was Locke's mother complicit in uh, what his Edwardian generation deemed a transgression? Did she decide that her indulgence was essential to his psychic balance? Wow, poor Mary Locke gets it again, okay? <laughs> I just want to say, first of all, that, you know, David has been, a, a without making too big a deal of it, a mentor to me. And, uh, you know, he's usually been, you know, come on, come on, get it done, you know. But uh, his biography, uh, two-volume biography of W.B. Du Bois, was a model, I think, for all biography, but particularly for African-American biographers who, generally speaking, when you, you know, write about a black life, your editors and 
publishers want you to, okay, let's just get this done. I mean, the level of complexity that you brought to W.B. Du Bois opened it up for us to treat other subjects with similar types of indulgence. And I think that's just a huge gift to me and many others because the publishing world often does not welcome long books. In fact, I blame you in part for the book being that long uh, because you, you know, were able to write so uh, wonderfully and I was always trying to emulate what you achieved. Well, I think you have, but uh, the question... uh, Yeah, well, see, they wouldn't give me two volumes. They kept saying, no, 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 two volumes, and they would complain about Rampersard's book. I mean, you know, it's... But anyway, Susan Ferber, I have to say, uh, just was tremendously supportive of me throughout this project at uh, Oxford through several other editors who were were not. Mm -hmm. Um, In any case, yes, Locke's mother. One of the challenges that I came to was really to empathize with her, you know, because I started thinking, you know, what would it be like to have a son like Locke? And one time a man I uh, interviewed said that there was a story he told about how he was riding on the streetcar with his mother and his mother, and he kept asking his mother, well, how does the streetcar work? He said, it was electricity. Went, well, how does electricity work? And finally he kept asking, she said, you know, Roy, shut up. <laughs> you know, so that the mental energy that he had, I'm sure was very challenging to her. You know, I'm not sure that he actually told his mother or if he did tell his mother. But he does say so. He does, he does say so. And, um, you know, but Locke lied a lot too. I just want to tell you that right now. <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, I mean, it, it, he could have. And if he did tell her and she supported him in that, she was doing what she thought she had to do for him, for him to be able to keep going. I think her constant decision was how do I protect him from both destruction and self-destruction? And so if you see her letters, they're always telling him, you know, why are you always so angry with your fellow black classmates? Why are you always, she was always trying to pull him in because he had a tremendous anger. Uh, So this would have been another case where she would have sacrificed, let's say, of Victorian, mores. On the other hand, when we read people like uh, Peter Gay, we realize that uh, Victorianism allowed for this public-private separation. Uh, Part of the facade of the Victorian of being prim and proper and having all these manners was that it created a private space, a private space we all know no longer exists for us, uh, that you found, he found in their letters, where all sorts of sexual transgressions could go on, but they were shielded into the private space. Uh, I would say that at times she seemed surprised that he was so angry or so upset with women. And many of these situations were potentially sexual situations, particularly when he was at school. 
You know, he was an eligible young black man who was doing well in school, and so people were curious about him. They tried to set him up with women, and he would just be scathing. And he said, well, why are you so negative? I just wondered if she would have been so um, surprised at his defensiveness around women had she known that he was gay. Or perhaps the notion of being gay didn't exist in her world. Maybe he had had a sexual experience with a man, but that didn't necessarily mean that he was going to only have sexual experiences uh, with men, you know, on and on. And if I may say so, uh, she is far more involved in his life uh, after he leaves the United States than I had ever imagined. Uh, indeed, he was rather cruel and abusive to her life, yes. though she was quite supportive of him, and so that he would summon her whenever grades weren't going well or some uh, disrespect from his point of view at Balliol or at Hartford uh, had, uh, had occurred, he would summon her to get on the transatlantic and spend time with him. One time, Which, even well, when she was in very ill. Indeed. She had to indeed. drag herself to a crossing Quite. Uh, at that time. Uh, yeah, but, he used her up in many ways. Uh -huh. But she follows him to Berlin and to various places where, in addition to uh, absorbing the cosmopolitan uh, aspects of European sojournment, uh, he's also pursuing quite actively uh, gay men yes. uh, just about everywhere. And uh, the, the, the number of, of letters that you have uh, saved and uh, display for us presents such a manic investment in that, that I'm just wondering, where was mother? If she, <laughs> where was mother? <laughs> if she's been brought. Mother? Uh, to, yes. 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 Well, again, I wonder whether or not she had a, you know, the black Victorians were known, I think there's some line, the most important uh, conceit they had was the capacity for denial. Mm. A denial of racism, denial of the barriers that, that they could not surmount by their skill with manners and taste and dress. And I think there must have been a certain amount of denial that uh, she had. And one of the ways that that worked, I think, in him is that she seemed earlier along to suggest to him that it wasn't good for him to socialize with young black men too much. That they were, you know, uh, not of the right class. So he would say, oh, well, I'm socializing with these young white men and, and they can help me out in my career and stuff. And then that became a kind of uh, shield mm. under which he could carry on his uh, relationships. And, and she might approve because she might think, well, they're going out, they're reading books, they're discussing ideas. That allows for him to get somewhere because you're always trying in this world to get into the white world. I think we kind of forget how segregated black life was in 1910, 1915, around then. So the idea that you would have a white friend of means of, of class and education who would take an interest in your son was something valuable. And that allowed her, I think, to not really think too deeply about what was really going on. So the most shocking discovery I've made in your biography, unsuspected totally on my part, as I have written a little bit about Locke, is that he failed in his Rhodes Scholarship. Uh, his rather large 400-page uh, dissertation or thesis, the concept of value, which he worked so hard on in the final time when he knew he would have to return with the expiry of the Rhodes, 
was declined by the board of the Literae Humaniores, and so he did not achieve the Bachelor of Science in Philosophy. Yeah. And then, uh, thinking though that there was a, uh, a solace in reapplying to the college that uh, had admitted him, and I suppose I should say parenthetically that to his surprise, and even to mine, though a Rhodes Scholar, he was not welcome at Balliol for racial reasons, and so he found himself at Harvard, probably a good thing because it was a new college, only 300 years old, so it had <laughs> internal plumbing and that sort of thing. Uh, but that college said, oh no, you can't re-enter us uh, and pursue the uh, bachelor, the B-lit, because gentlemen don't accumulate debts and you have a reputation of being a profligate uh, debtor. The brother was living large. He is living very large yeah. indeed. He's an equestrian um, in no time at all. Uh, tailored beautifully, and the photo you have of Percy Philip and Alain side by side galloping somewhere uh, <laughs> suggests a deep uh, debt in order to pull that off. But he doesn't have uh, <clears throat> a degree. Yeah. And you write that had he gotten the Oxford degree, he might not have been so driven to make a real contribution to the race struggle. Failing to get the degree and lying about it imposed a heavy burden. Locke returned home in 1911 carrying a debt it would take his entire life to work off. Well, I think that that's quite perceptive, but isn't there something else to be said about this failure? Um, his life is devoted to the race, but it begins with a lie. And it begins with the lie that if we put ourselves in the a uh, place of the Rhodes Trust means that there will not be a successor, as indeed there was not. Locke was the first Rhodes Scholar that betokened perhaps a follow-on. There will not be one until the civil rights movement. So the consequences of that are really immense, I think. Don't you think? Well, yeah. I mean, um, he, I think that quote I sometime maybe in 1937 or so, I found, I mean, I, I, he had written it in 37. He w writes a note and he says, I woke up in the middle of the night in a sweat. Hmm. And even then, 37, after his own The New Negro, he was still driven by that guilt. And, it, and he writes a long thing about, yes, I probably should have said that I didn't take the degree, but then if I had, I would have had to explain some of the circumstances of the, the, about race, and I didn't want to open that up, and then I didn't want to also blame all of the failure on race, and basically he goes on in a note to himself trying to explain to himself why he had to lie, and yet the lie is still bothering him, you know, when he's, you know, in his 50s. But uh, you do not accept his refusal not to blame race. You say that the poor man, given what he uh, confronted with the entire cohort of the Rhodes uh, Americans, except for Horace Callan, I believe, who's yeah. Jewish and yeah. also somewhat um, adrift from the point of view, yes, of, of the uh, activities of the university. But you emphasize what, what a shock it was to 
encounter this racism. And I find it a little hard to uh, accept that naivete. Uh I mean, it seems to me that... You mean that he was naive? Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. It seems so much uh, was invested by the African-American bourgeoisie, this Victorian class, in avoiding things that it was uppermost in one's mind that the world is uh, hostile and that one must be careful. So it seems to me that his shock at what he encounters uh, is uh, insufficient to to blame race. And I think perhaps Locke was correct to say, I I won't say it was race. Mm -hmm. It seems to me he was surprisingly indolent. It seems to me uh, he pursued a life of persiflage with all of its consequences of indebtedness. Uh, he uh, did not master Greek, imagine that, and decided... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> decided yeah that, I've had my struggles with it, too. <laughs> he did. Uh, well, in any case, that, those are just things that, 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 yeah. that did occur to me. It was interesting. I, I uh, edited a set of uh, lectures that he did at Howard called Race Contacts and Interracial Relations. And, and during that, I had several conversations with Michael Winston, mm-hmm. uh, who was the director of that uh, thing. And we talk a lot about Locke. And when that came out, he basically said, you know, what experiences did Locke ever have with race? And so that made me start thinking about this, okay? And um, this insulation, I think was one of the strategies of Mary Locke. Mm -hmm. I think that Mary, you know, often African-American parents have this dilemma, right? I mean, at what point do you let children know what you know, right? You know, and thinking that, well, maybe it'll change and then I don't want to infect them with a view that is now anachronistic about race. But uh, I think she made the decision along with possibly ignoring some of his uh, orientation also sort of protected him from direct racial uh, encounters. And in fact, his greatest support outside of her came from his professors in education, who were in a way kind of father, uh, his father died when he was six. Uh, if you look at the letters that they wrote when he was at the the Central High School uh, in Philadelphia in School of Pedagogy. Uh, I was mean, that integrated? Yes, yes. yes. Uh, largely by Locke and one or two other black people because mm-hmm. it, it was a specialized school mm-hmm. that the elite could go to and he got in there. I mean, they just bathed him with uh, uh, attention and being precocious was part of what got him uh, attention because he was part of this estate group that, you know, indulged that. And then at Harvard, uh, he had enormous success with his professors, Royce and... Uh, Adriana. Yes, they, they all loved him. So I think it wasn't just the Rhodes Scholars tormenting him. I mean, just imagine that he's 4'11 and about 98 pounds walking around Oxford, and these guys are mostly, uh, Rhodes Scholars were recruited as uh, physical specimens because that's what Oxford wanted out of the Rhodes Scholars. So they could put them on their rowing team or whatever, or their now, rugby now, team. Now, how on earth did he get there then? What, what, what athletic uh, uh, attributes did he display? <laughs> that, uh, he probably wouldn't tell them. <laughs> no, um, he, he was a coxman. Oh, yes, right. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, 
one of my interviewers uh, said, he said, Professor Locke, I heard that you were, when you went to uh, the Rose Scholar, you were a coxman. Mm -hmm. See, it's just like that. That was you know, dubious. He said, yes. He said, you, you steered men and you steered boats, right, <laughs> Professor Locke? <laughs> so, you know, he actually really tried to do that and was very effective in that role in the boats, but he had a heart condition That's right. which made it difficult. And when the Oxford physician examined him, he said, I can't imagine how this man ever made it mm -hmm. across the water, let alone be a Rhodes Scholar. Because they had this stereotype, you see, of the Rhodes Scholar as the American who was all brawn and no brain. Right. Which leads me to the other part of this. Locke actually, while he did live high, his academics were not that out of line from those of other Rhodes Scholars. Right. I mean, they, you know, Rhodes Scholars were not known as the brainiacs of Oxford. Many of them did very little and got degrees. And many of them certainly did not do 400 page philosophical thesis of original work on the concept of value. So I believe, aside from the fact that he was a little pain in the ass, <laughs> that it was a racial thing. In other words, they were gonna say, look, you can come here and you can conform and you can behave like we say, and uh, take all of the abuse that you will get from the Rhodes Scholars and not be invited to the, the Thanksgiving dinner and, and marginalized when we meet with the American ambassador. You'll take all those insults and you won't actually react. And if you do that, just maybe we'll give you a degree. That was the discourse. And I think he was just too much of a proud person at his 411 to take that. And the other thing about this is I noticed that he was constantly running away from Oxford. Now, partly that was because he was you know, pursuing some men, but partly was because he couldn't work there. And I think he'd always worked extremely well at Harvard. So the fact that he felt, I think, under threat, I'll just tell you that, while he was at Oxford, he wrote the thesis in Berlin. Yes. And mm -hmm. so, so I think that this is kind of an aspect, I think, of the African-American intellectual tradition that one almost has to run away from those places of strength for the traditional history. The one last thing, which I didn't make as big a deal out of it as one point is another, I think I said someplace, he was too far away from his mother. I, I think that there was a certain almost spatial calculus so the ideal situation was when she was in Philadelphia and he was in Boston. Uh, he almost wrote her every day. Mm -hmm. So, and she wrote him back. You know, he was being fed. And, and mm -hmm. then we went to Oxford, they didn't have many letters. From time to time, he'd miss one or two letters and he'd send a telegraph and he says, I'm gonna ha have to come back across the water <laughs> if I don't hear from you. Mm -hmm. And so I think when he came back and then went to Harvard for grad school, he took his mother with him. Uh -huh. And she was like the uh, Duracell. <laughs> uh, 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 and then when he went to, to, to uh, Howard, uh, before that, she was in Philadelphia, he was in Washington. He wrote those great set of lectures. So there was almost some kind of ideal distance that he needed from her to be fueled, but also not smothered. 
and Harvard provided that for him when he was an undergraduate, and Howard did in the early days, but I think Oxford, once he was hit with this, he didn't have anyone else to give him the bomb that he would have needed to, to go forward. Interesting. Uh, in any case, he did achieve a Harvard PhD, no small achievement in, in philosophy, and I, I was reminded of, of that accomplishment uh, and, and the failure of Locke to achieve the degree at Oxford of the similar dilemma that Du Bois had faced at Friedrich Wilhelm Universität. Uh, in his case, it was because the funders of his uh, scholarship, his stipend, decided that he was being spoiled by the kind of uh, education he was achieving at Berlin, the uh, acme of, of academic achievement, and that he needed to return to be of service to his people. And Du Bois, I believe, said, well, I wasn't quite able to get my doctorate at, at Berlin. And so I just compensated by something at Harvard. And perhaps Locke had the same sort of solace. It's just interesting that these essentially geniuses of one sort or another are constantly being called spoiled. You know, I mean, this is interesting, you know, because, I mean, how spoiled can you be in, like, you know, a hyper-racist situation? I mean, no, you, you know. must be well-behaved for your opportunity, as even, as even Jackie Robinson and yes. Branch Rickey told him. Mm -hmm. Don't spoil your opportunity by getting angry when they call you nigger on the, uh, on the baseball diamond. Right. Yes. Be that. a good book on that, Spoiled. <laughs> Indeed, I would agree. Would you tell us a little bit about this uh, thesis, the 400-page document, because it is the platform, I believe, for his future scholarship, even the scholarship that is rather more, how shall I put it, demotic, uh, pedestrian, uh, <laughs> is urging us all to do certain things in a kind yeah. of propagandizing way. Yeah. But you take very seriously uh, what he achieves. Well, you know, I had to read it, so That's I right. figured <laughs> this is one of the things, you know, how many, can you cut out what you had to spend? No, the concept of value, I thought it was quite uh, uh, interesting because uh, the, the tendency at that time, of course, that was one of the, also another problem, is he, instead of doing, you know, idealism or logic, which is what Oxford philosophers really liked, he took up this concept of value. And value theory was mainly a German intervention. So that was already an impolitic thing for him to do. You know, we, we learned a long time ago, right, that you don't pick a thesis topic that your dissertation director doesn't really like. Okay, that's going to be a lot of work. But anyway, he picked it anyway because I guess he was driven by it. Most theories of value at that time essentially use the use value theory, right? That, you know, essentially we have values because they're useful. You know, we, we value marriage because ma marriage is a basis of procreation and continuing of the, the human race. The, and the, the cash value of things, uh, William James. Uh, yes, William uh, James. I mean, even he was considered radical by, by, by the Oxford people who were much more uh, kind of, uh, there was either that or there was a logical approach to value, you know, that there's a logic to it. Wittgenstein and Hegel, perhaps. Yeah, and, and, that, and that, that logic drives our ability to value. But what Locke did is he really pursued more of an approach that would, I guess you would have to say was in 
Henry Bergson mm -hmm. and uh, Santayana that, that valuing is essentially the ability to imagine something, that we value that which we love or that we value that which we think of, that feeling and emotion is the key to valuation. And so he developed this thing that when we have a value, there's a feeling associated. We have a value of love, there's a feeling. We have a great art, we have a certain feeling that we have for that. Not just what satisfies my needs, but what satisfies my inner sense of having value myself is really important. And so art was critical to this. And so he created this, this very elaborate discussion of value and valuing. Of course, this was completely anathema to the logicians like J. Cook Wilson, who if they did do some value theory, made it an extension of their, you know, soon to be outdated logic theory uh, what, once Wittgenstein came along. So that then translated into what the value of art is. That art, by loving and thinking about art, there was a side of us that would be enhanced, almost like a muscle that would be strengthened from being used, and that that would essentially transform us. And that if black people, essentially, once you began to apply this, began to commit themselves to valuing, appreciating, creating art, that would change us from kind of the materialistic use value that's so dominant in American culture, or just a purely logical approach that you know he thought was a mistake. That led him, I think, to see the value in black cultural products. And that also in a kind of perhaps almost essentialist way, to see that African peoples tended to have certain values, to value beauty, to value design, to value music, to value motion, that was somewhat different than the dominant, say, Anglo-European uh, uh, thing. And this kind of fits in a little bit with the Du Boisian thing of the double consciousness, you know, American Negro, the African, is a, is a value that if enhanced, has something to contribute to world civilization that's different than the typical materialism that I think both of them were critical of, uh, of American culture. That, that's interesting that, that there is that similarity, isn't there? The conservation of races, which was Du Bois's big theoretical um, explanation of what race was all about, and Locke's, which is uh, affectism and uh, emotion uh, and sensibility determining what you prize. The one thing I would say, though, is that what made Locke's theory a little different and a, almost quasi-Marxian is that he thought values were produced by context. Mm -hmm. And as the context changed, the value changed. Mm -hmm. And so that he felt that the new Negro would evolve as the context would change. It would change over time so that the new Negro, say at the time of Booker T. Washington in 1901, might be one context, but in the 20s it might be different. And so that value actually was in dialogue with everything around it as well as our emotions. Well, let's get to the moment, perhaps, when we have the debut of these creatures that uh, Locke <laughs> is going to... Uh, creatures, huh? Yeah. <laughs> ...going to sponsor. And that is that moment, March 21st, 1924, the Civic Club Dinner, yeah. when what all of, uh, of distinguished uh, New York assembled, some 125 
notables, uh, publishers, uh, uh, poets, uh, influential people, uh, and the new people, Locke hopes, will achieve things that will in fact make art and uh, the special gifts the African-American brings to the society transformational uh, and result in great progress. Interestingly enough, you say it is the moment of the enunciation of the uh, of gaze, uh, and that that is uh, synonymous with the arrival of modernity, and that uh, Hurston and Hughes and uh, Eric Walrond and uh, Gene Toomer and others represent an advance beyond the old battle guard of Du Bois and others in which uh, progress and achievement uh, was inextricably tied to voting and ed economics and uh, organization. I, I find this really interesting. Well, what do you mean when you say that this is the uh, annunciation of uh, the gay sensibility. First of all, the fact that it was an opportunity dinner rather than an NAACP dinner mm -hmm. meant that, you know, people like Cullen and, and Langston Hughes and, and especially Toomer, if they weren't necessarily gay, but they were sexually complex people, they were not heteronormative in the traditional way. They weren't having families. They weren't part of that culture. And many of them felt rejected uh, uh, by that culture. And aesthetics was sort of a refuge from both the world of constant white racism and also this black Victorian world that had become sort of atrophied, I would say, by the 1920s, and which, you know, people uh, mimicked many of the aspects of white culture, like skin color preferences, uh, you had to have education. There was a tension in that. And so this is a new art with something that maybe stereotypically was associated with uh, queer people. And in a way, by launching this movement into the centerpiece of, of, of civil rights struggle through art, through aesthetics, and through beauty, beauty itself being a goal now, irrespective of whether it leads directly to racial progress, uh, was essentially an, a new formation, I would argue. Um, I think that also there was tension between that group that I'm talking about, uh, Eric Walwyn, uh, County Cullen, um, Langston Hughes to a certain extent, Zora Neale Hurston certainly, and the Du Bois, Jesse Fawcett group of people. And so this is the turning point in that sense because as many people know, this is a moment when Locke essentially uh, marginalizes Jessie Fawcett, and after that, she's not quite the force, at least according to the way in which the history is written, that she was before that. Locke becomes the head, and obviously, from a certain standpoint, you know, one of Locke's 
problems is that, you know, he often chooses and, and promotes people who he's interested in. Mm. There's this constant struggle that many of the artists find themselves in of, on the one hand, really liking his uh, support, at the, other, at the same time thinking that it often carries some sort of hidden or not so hidden obligation that they're going to put out. And so I think that it is this moment. And afterwards, when the um, uh, survey graphic comes out and then the new Negro and this notion of aesthetics, even Du Bois eventually says, you know, this is going to lead to decadence. Uh, and decadence is a term that is associated with uh, Oscar Wilde and uh, the whole notion that um, uh, decadence is and dear Carl Van Vechten. Carl Van Vechten and um, <clears throat> uh, and Locke is sort of trying, I think, to say no. A gay-driven aesthetics doesn't have to lead to uh, decadence. <laughs> it can actually lead to a kind of opening, a kind of celebration, sort of like the Sonnenkinder movement in uh, Germany, where you have a uh, sexually complex, often gay movement of the young man who is going to essentially uh, liberate German uh, culture during the Weimar period, <laughs> and of course is crushed later by the Nazis and others, in part because it's seen as a, a homosexual uh, uh, movement. So I was influenced to a certain extent with this uh, by uh, Martin Green, who was a uh, professor at uh, Tufts when I was there, who wrote that wonderful book, Children of the Sun, about the sun kinder. And I saw many uh, parallels, and that's part of the transnationalism, I think, of, of, of this movement, that people in Germany and, and England and France who had a similar set of openness about sexual experimentation and difference, at the same time, uh, a very positive view that, that a new world that was tolerant of sexual diversity and racial diversity could come about through this movement. Of course, obviously, in many ways, that didn't happen, but, but that was at least some of the intentionality, I think, that was there. So here we have the extreme that the advantage uh, of the race lies in order, uh, convention, and the uh, achievement of group success in rather conventional ways. Uh, and Locke, of course, is at the other end of the node, uh, saying that the really liberatory uh, experiment worth, uh, uh, worth nurturing uh, is one of internal growth, uh, of art, of beauty, uh, and of, in a sense, cocking a snoot at the slings and arrows of uh, outrageous racist fortune, I suppose. And I just want to say one thing I, about what you're saying, though. Mm -hmm. You know, um, James Baldwin had a, a very interesting um, discussion with Malcolm X in, I think it was 1961, and, and this was when Malcolm X was still in the Nation of Islam, and, and Malcolm X was criticizing the sit-in movement. And what he was saying is that the sit-in movement is bad because we have all these young black people sitting when all around the world students are standing and fighting for their rights and that sitting was passive and essentially an unmasculine way of confronting uh, power. And, you know, he repeats this several times and finally Bowen says, look, you know, in the new order, if it ever comes, 
it's not only that we're going to have to revise our notions of race, we're also going to have to revise our notion on what it means to be men. <laughs> and that, you know, he goes on to say, it's been proven that even some of our football players are not men, okay, which was the way of kind of introducing that. And so I think that's also happening here that the notion of what is a successful black man is being struggled over here. And that the tradition notion of masculinity that you kind of mirror the white man, you see, and you try to have all of those things that he has, this normative self. Locke is saying, no, there's a lot of people who actually aren't doing that, and we don't want to do that. And we're actually able to strike out in our own uh, direction, and we can still be part of that group that contributes to the race. Because part of the thing here is that Dwight McBride and others have written that if you were gay and black, you couldn't be accepted in the civil rights movement. You couldn't be a contributor. Uh, and Locke is saying, no, I reject that. I'm going to be able to be who I am, and I'm going to make a, tradition, a, a, a contribution, and I'm going to do it out of those things that I know have value, back to that term again, like aesthetics, like beauty, which actually in some ways we feel are actually superior to what the American civilization has to offer. I guess I would uh, rip off uh, Stephen Greenblatt and say a swerve, mm -hmm. a swerve with a double meaning perhaps, uh, a change that leads to the modernity, that black life can have a level of complexity and reject just simply having to be mimetic when it deals with the middle-class white life. I think it illustrates this dilemma. Uh, there was a riot, the Harlem race yes. riot, which rather ended the Harlem Renaissance. Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, Mayor LaGuardia's uh, committee examined the causes and uh, delivered an enormous uh, load of uh, uh, findings, sociological and economic and the rest of it. But, and they weren't uh, released. And Locke wished to write about this, and uh, influential people in the city thought it would be a jolly good idea if he did. And so he <laughs> was uh, given special and privileged access to the load of sociological data about this uh, terrible riot. And the man who encouraged him, speaking for Mayor LaGuardia, said, and you know, out of this, you will get the Harlem Art Museum. Mm -hmm. uh, the city will fund it. Mm -hmm. And so Locke examined all this data, and then he wrote it rather politely. He bowdlerized it, and E. Franklin Frazier, the leading African-American sociologist of the day, as you uh, relate, nearly killed Locke when <laughs> he read the report and captured him on the Howard campus, put him in his car, and drove him around the city, lambasting him for what he had done to have misrepresented the etiology of the riot in a way uh, that would please, of course, uh, the people who wished to not confront the realities of it, and he didn't get his Harlem Art Museum. So some of the pitfalls of that, it seems to me that uh, desire to associate with people who are in the forefront of things and to translate uh, their wishes and at the same time think that his uh, important position writing about these things positions him in a leadership way that has some dubious ultimate yeah. value. And you know, again, this is David's influence, okay, because David's uh, 
Uh, when this Harlem, David. you, yes, you, man. Uh, you know, uh, when Harlem was in vogue, his classic study, you, you make that case. You were the first one to really, I think, uh, use that. Often people say it was the Great Depression or the, the stock market crash that ended it, but there are a lot of books that are being published in 31 and 32 that still have this Harlem Renaissance energy. And, but you said that that riot ended it. So in working on this, I was always thinking about that. Okay, that riot, that riot. How am I going to deal with the riot? And then, you know, I interviewed a man and he said, told me, that uh, Frazier was so mad that he put him in his, he said he had a big black Buick. You can think of little locks sitting in this passenger seat of some huge Buick being driven around, yelled at him. And I said, wow. And then I began to see that Locke's views changed after that. He started embracing the necessity of protest. He started saying, oh, gee, maybe there is something. Because basically what Frazier said is, look, you can't continue to represent black intellectuals if you're going to sell out like this. And Locke realized that he'd been played, you see, because his great friend, uh, um, Kellogg, Kellogg, who had been the person who had put him in with the survey graphic, had been the one to say, oh, I'll get you access. And Kellogg even writes to LaGuardia and says, I think you'll be very satisfied with what Locke did. And Locke basically absolved the city from having done anything wrong as to why the riot occurred. In other words, it was just some crazy black people running around. It wasn't that actually there was one like black nurse working in the Harlem hospital, you know, and that there were no black doctors and that there was the relief which was being given to people during uh, the early days of um, the Great Depression was skewed horribly toward those boroughs that were predominantly white and not in Harlem. All these things, you know, and of course people said, well, LaGuardia was up for election. It's sort of like with the Hillary Clinton thing, you know, you, you tear down the one chance we have, but Locke was played because they did dangle that. And then eventually he didn't even get that. Uh, part of this, though, gets back to his sexual identity because he was dying to get to New York. New York was the place where he could be f the freest in the United States. And so the possibility that a center would be created and he could leave Howard, where he always felt in the Washington, D.C. bourgeois world he was under threat, he could get to, to, to New York, that led him to, you know, minimize things. And of course, LaGuardia had the various supervisors write him and say, oh, no, we've cleared that up, that it was wrong and, and all of that. And so I think that was a turning point. You, you helped me see that after that, that that was one of the reasons why he began to say, OK, I'm going to have to move more to the left, more to the radicals like Frazier and Bunch and others who are critical of American society and not just say, okay, well, that doesn't matter as long as we get art out of it. <laughs> that was Pulitzer Prize winning author Jeffrey C. Stewart speaking with fellow Pulitzer Prize winner David Levering Lewis. This interview was recorded in the City University of New York's Leon Levy Center for Biography on September 21, 2018. Jeffrey Stewart's book, The New Negro, The Life of Elaine Locke, was published by Oxford University Press in December 2017. Thanks again to the Leon Levy Center and the featured authors for granting us permission to share this interview.
To learn more about Bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Bye.